Hello and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we are covering The Haunted Jarvie by William Hope Hodgson. This story was published posthumously in the Premier Magazine in 1929, though it was written around 1910 or 1912. Glenn, do you, do you want to explain why we're back a week early with this podcast and why we're covering this story? Yeah, we're doing this extra episode because a listener commissioned us to, which is a, a service that we offer. And if you're a patron on Patreon, you can get a pretty good discount on this and you even get a free one at some of the, the levels. So if there's something you'd like us to cover, you can check it out and let us know. We'll do extra stories, special topics, TV episodes, uh, really whatever you can think of. We'd actually really like some creative projects. We've done several of these on the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast and also on Lower Decks, and it, it really is a real pleasure to do something extra for our patrons. And of course, we're so very grateful for the generosity. But Brandon, I'm particularly excited about doing this story because it's your first time reading a William Hope Hodgson story, and I'm really curious about your opening thoughts on this one before we get into it. I really enjoyed this story quite a lot, and I think a lot of what I want to say about it will serve us better in the discussion. But I will say, William Hope Hodgson is a really, really good writer. This story is a lot of fun. It's written well. He deploys a lot of great techniques involving characterization and jargon and different things like that that work really well for the story. Uh, And I'm also interested in the way that it influences what basically becomes urban fantasy, which is something we're going to talk about in the discussion. But I want to hold my comments uh, about the story until we get to the end. But Glenn, first, we need to do the recap. So what is this story about? Right. Yeah, let's get into it. I think we're going to be talking quite a bit, actually, about genre and narrative technique throughout both the recap and the discussion parts of this episode. Like many Victorian and Edwardian ghost stories, this one, The Haunted Jarvie, has a frame narrative. And this one really serves to give us the premise of not only this story, but the whole series of stories that this is a part of, which is the the Karnacki, the ghost finder stories. And the real beauty of this device is that it warms us up, it welcomes us into this speculative world, just in case it's our first one in this series. And in that case, it's a, a lot like an episode of a, of a television show, or at least an episodic television show like we used to have, you know, 20 years ago. And what matters here is that Karnacki is an occult detective whose stories are told to the reading public of the UK by his close associate named Dodgson. And this is very much like Holmes and Watson. Karnacki tells his stories to Dodgson and to three other friends at his flat at number 472 Shane Walk in Chelsea, London. This is a real fashionable and real expensive place to live. So we know that you know, very much unlike the iconic occult detectives of our contemporary pop culture, like John Constantine and the, the Winchesters from Supernatural, Karnacki is a gentleman of means, and this matters because it means we can trust his story, right? He's not a con artist trying to scam anyone with his stories of going out and finding ghosts. Right, and we get more of that as the story continues to develop. As you said, Glenn, you know, the hero of a bunch of these stories, a whole set of stories, is this guy called Karnacki. And as you also pointed out, and I did some leafing around in this edition as well. The stories all begin with this group of friends getting summoned to Karnacki's place for dinner or drinks or cigars or whatever so that he can tell them of his latest ghost hunting adventures. And why this is great for me, not only because of its relationship to you know the Victorian ghost story, is that in this story in particular, Hodgson does something a little 
strange with the way that he invites his friends to hear these stories, but he seems to also need people's help on these adventures. And we're going to talk about when that moment arrives in the story. There's a lot of subversions of this Victorian and Edwardian ghost story genre that Hodgson is playing with in this story. And I think it works well, but not perfectly. And that's some of what we'll discuss in our discussion. And before we get too deep into this, we should say there are about a dozen of these Karnacki stories. They were wildly and widely influential. I mean, so much of our contemporary pop occult detectives, such as the Winchesters or Angel, oh, a lot of what they do to Karnacki, the ghost finder. One of the things that's really interesting about The Haunted Jarvie is that it's kind of in the middle of these batch of stories that Hodgson was cranking out. And it's one where he wanted to break the mold a little bit of what these stories are by giving us a ghost story in a bizarre setting. So it's in itself a little bit bizarre that this is the first one that we're doing on the, on the show. It's a little bit like uh, telling someone they should check out the TV show Angel and they should start with the one where he's back in time on a submarine. <laughs> right. Or becomes a puppet or something like that. You, you need a lot of uh, build up for that. I, nothing was lost on me as a reader, I think, in part because so many of these tropes are all over the place in our pop culture landscape today. And so many of the tropes he's using are also familiar based on the genres he's pulling from uh, that I think it just works beautifully as a mode of generating conflict for the story. All these friends have no idea where Karnacki goes or what he's up to until he summons them for dinner. And it's kind of a really, really fun trope to use to tell the story. All right. Well, I think now we can get to the matter at hand, which is to say we can get to the haunted Jarvie. The Jarvie is a ship. It's uh, one of the real old time sailing ships, and it's owned by Karnacki's old friend, Captain Thompson. And the thing is, the Jarvie is haunted. Captain Thompson does not hide that fact, at least not from Karnacki, who, of course, is a ghost finder. So why would you hide that from him? But whenever Karnacki asks him for more details, he can't really articulate what's going on on the ship, how he knows it's haunted or what the evidence is for this. He just says, well, you see things, but he can't keep a crew on her. Every crew he hires gets frightened, and they see things, and they feel things, and then they quit, except for the times when they can't quit because they all die, which has happened from time to time when he's lost a lot of sailors who fall from uh, high up in the masts, from aloft is the term that we will be encountering quite a bit in this story. And so you, you might expect that the plot of this story is that Captain Thompson has asked Karnacki to help him out. That's how these stories work. But... It's not the plot of this story. It's not how this story works. Karnacki ends up on the ship simply because he needs a pleasure cruise for his health. Again, because he's a gentleman of means, and that's what one does from time to time. But Karnacki has picked the Jarvie because it's haunted. So uh, kind of a, a working holiday, not a real relaxing vacation. It's clearly violating his doctor's instructions here. He intends to investigate the mystery about which the captain is at once so positive and and so vague. That was a phrase that Hodgson used that I really loved. Well, Karnacki brings all of his mechanical and electrical apparatus with him and gets to work, which is cool. He is a technical, scientific ghost finder. 
not a sort of magic user, uh, so maybe not quite a urban fantasy type of ghost finder like John Constantine. And Karnacki spends a fortnight making an exhaustive search of the ship. So like two weeks happened here in sort of one paragraph of the story. So it's a real slow build. And during these two weeks, he sounds and he measures every casement, every bulkhead, and he examines every exit from the holds and then seals all the hatches, but he doesn't find anything. And here, this is kind of trying to preclude any sort of Scooby-Doo nonsense in which it's going to turn out to be that there's one of the the sailors has been doing this the whole time because of some vendetta he has against the captain for some, I don't know, failed marriage proposal or something like that. Yeah, exactly. There's a real element of setting up the magic trick. You have the person who you trust come to kind of inspect everything to make sure there's no funny business going on. This actually really reminded me of, you know, what Houdini gets up to in the 20s when he tries to debunk the spirit mediums and their practice. And spiritualism and being a spiritual medium and all those sorts of things were really big in the early part of the 20th century and the late part of the 19th century. And this is the kind of thing that Hodgson is engaging with. And I love this moment of the story. It really feels like Hodgson is going to give us a great magic trick and he's going to let us know what's going on and he's going to give us a person we can trust as a tour to ensure that this person's skepticism is forefront in our mind and they would debunk anything immediately should any debunking need to take place. And, you know, we're really meant to take Karnacki as an expert. So if he finds nothing untoward about the Jarvie, then we're going to take his word for it. Well, after two weeks of finding nothing, finally, on the 18th day at sea, something happens. Karnacki is walking on the deck with Thompson when the old man suddenly stops and looks up at the sails and says, wind's dropping, mister. There'll be trouble tonight. Just see Jan. And uh, this is how Thompson speaks, the sort of trademarked uh, Cornish accent that we know as talk like a pirate. Uh, I just did it pretty terribly, and I promise I will not keep doing it. It might happen one more time, but I will not do it every time Thompson speaks. I promise. Yeah, it's hilarious. Hodgson uses this kind of jargon lingo sort of thing going on. And I just think it's a perfect characterization of this captain. It immediately draws us into the type of person that this captain is without needing to do a lot of description to tell us what type of person he is. It's it's great. All right. So Thompson points away windward and Karnacki looks through some binoculars and sees a, a, a vague shadow on the still surface of the sea. Another great line there. At first, he thinks it is really just a a natural shadow. But Thompson shows Karnacki that the ship is actually surrounded by these things and that they are all kind of converging on the ship. He just says, at a rate of knots, which I think just means they're moving quickly. Captain Thompson, of course, has seen this before, and he ignores Karnacki's continued attempts to, to rationalize what's going on. And this does go on for quite a while. And Thompson explains that when this has happened before, as the shadows get closer to the ship, they'll dissipate and they'll become less and less visible, but they'll still be there, even if you can't see them. They'll still be there hanging around the ship. The captain sends some men up to take down some of the the sails so that he won't have to send anyone up, up the masts after dark with these shadows around. This is how he's lost crewmen before, and he's determined not to let that happen on this voyage. And when Karnacki presses the captain for more, he just says that you'll be safe as long as you are in the light and on the deck. This is super ominous. And Karnacki muses here that he's astonished that the captain just stoically accepts that his ship is haunted and that people might die. I have to say that the captain figure does indeed befuddle me 
too. You you have an expert on your ship. Why are you not just coming clean with him with all the facts of the case and embracing his ability and desire to help you? Yeah, it's a question we're going to take up in the discussion. There's a real odd conflict, which might not be the perfect word, between this sort of scientism of investigation and the fear of the captain and his unwillingness to engage in this investigation. I think it's a technique that Hodgson is using as he's, you know, scrawling these stories down as maybe as quickly as possible so he can get paid for them to just delay information and keep the reader engaged on a certain level. I really think Hodgson does a great job with the spooky imagery and the shadows in the sky and the storm that that's going to show up in just a minute. And I kind of read some of the captains withholding information as a skepticism, in a sense, towards Karnacki, even though they're friends. That kind of works with Karnacki's general skepticism towards the whole situation until the haunting begins in earnest. So I think Hodgson is trying to keep us in a skeptical frame of mind that it's not worth explaining what the haunting is like because you kind of have to experience it for yourself. And maybe the captain doesn't want to lose face in front of his friend, even though he's a ghost detective. Well, I think that's absolutely what is actually happening in this story. But at this point, I kind of thought he was hiding something and maybe up to something. And I think Hodgson wants his audience to be suspecting that. I really do think Hodgson here is playing with a lot of the the genre tropes and the expectations of his audience. And he keeps breaking them at every turn. The plot doesn't hinge on what we think it's going to hinge on. The captain isn't actually the client here. Then the captain's resisting the help of his friend. Maybe he's up to something bad. I really like what Hodgson is doing here with our expectations. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. But as a reader, it does create these weird challenges because you don't know what Hodgson is doing in terms of the tropes that he's using. And so is Captain Thompson hiding something on purpose? Is he trying to protect Karnacki? Does he have sinister plans for Karnacki? This is not a type of ghost story that I've really ever read before in this period. And, And I'll let everybody know at the point where it just totally switches gears for me, where I become surprised and recognize the story finally for what it is. All right, well, let's try to get to that point. So right now, this is all the excitement that there is until about 11 p.m. when the wind suddenly picks up and Hodgson describes this as a furious squall burst upon the vessel. That's a phrase that gave me goosebumps uh, when I read it the first time. And frankly, it gave me goosebumps just now saying it out loud. I think there's a lot of great, really powerful descriptive writing in this story. And it seems to Karnacki as if there is something monstrous and even something abnormal in this wind, almost as if some power is using the elements to some infernal purpose. This wind does not die down, and the captain comments that it's going to split the sails to ribbons, but he doesn't care. He's not risking any of his crew by sending someone up there to take them down unless the wind threatens, and I have to say I love this phrase, unless the wind threatens to shake the sticks out of her, by which he means break the masts. I guarantee this is a phrase I'm going to start using just in my common parlance, or at least to my students who can't stop me. And of course, this is exactly what starts to happen. The wind does indeed start to shake the sticks out of her, and so the captain has to send all hands aloft to deal with the sails. And there's not really any drama around dealing with the sails. Hodgson actually tells us in a a relative clause of a sentence that the sailors take care of the task just fine. But when the sailors start to come back down, there is a loud crying and a, a shouting from up in the masts. And then there's a crash down onto the main deck. And then there's another. Two sailors have fallen to their deaths. 
And all the while, the wind is still raging, but the sailors who still aren't down take some heroic risks to get themselves to the deck as quickly as they can. And as he stands near the bodies of these two dead sailors, Karnacki again feels as if there is some power of evil filling the darkness around the ship, and that it isn't done with them yet. This is all chilling. The next morning, they conduct a solemn funeral service for these two sailors, and now that the, the stakes have been raised, right, there's been death, violence on the ship, it's time for Karnacki to get serious about finding ghosts. The good news is that he thinks he knows what is going on, and he has a plan. The whole thing is happening because of attractive vibrations, and there's a really great monograph by some scientist named Harzam about this, and Harzam shows that attractive vibrations are invariably produced by induced vibrations. That is to say, they're created by temporary vibrations that are set up by some outside cause. And more importantly, Harzam has succeeded in producing a counter or a uh, repellent vibration on three occasions, and Karnacki himself has tried it once before and had sort of moderate success at it. Now, this is all meaningless. It's it's basically babble, and Hodgson dispenses with it as quickly as he can by having Karnacki tell his friends within the frame narrative here that he doesn't want to bore them with too many technical details. But Hodgson is writing this at a time when electricity was still largely new, and the idea that there might be other unseen phenomena that can have profound physical effects was kind of startling here in 1910, right? That in some sense, electricity and things that might be like electricity or magnetism were kind of supernatural. And this is really wonderful, really interesting. Electricity does come back in the imagery of the story in a big way, and it returns at the end as a stand-in for what we have discovered and what that means about the things as yet undiscovered. And it's wonderful. But this is the point of the story, as I said before, where something totally unexpected comes up. I was expecting a ghost story and there to be an actual ghost that needs to be dispelled by some sort of justice or something like that. There was a murder on the ship that nobody cared about. Instead, we get this whole business about attractive and repellent vibrations. And it really becomes about how Karnacki has turned ghost hunting into a science, roughly speaking. And much of the story he tells from here on out, rather than being the typical sort of investigation, as I just said, of who is the ghost and why are they haunting something and how can we get them to stop it is really a, a like a pseudo techno thriller, like a precursor to a techno thriller about the tools of the trade and the rules of expelling negative spiritual energy. And it blew me away. I was not expecting this to be in this story at all. Right. In a lot of ways, this actually reads like a Jack London story that just happens to have a much nerdier protagonist than most Jack London stories have. Uh, all right. So at this point, Karnacki gets to work. He sets up his electric apparatus to send out this strange repelling force to the dim, far shadows of mystery, which moved steadily out of the distance towards the vessel. And I thought that was a great sentence. Again, beautiful nature writing here. As the shadows approach, the wind picks up again, and this time it rips off one of the sails, even though they've all actually been rolled up and fastened to the mast. So this is serious business. But the captain isn't really phased by this, and he's really quite a character, the captain. He shouts, let them all go! And I have to say, this really reminded me of Captain Sulu in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, when he shouts, fly her apart then, because his super best friend, Captain Kirk, needs his help. But even as the wind dies down here, Karnacki sees, and, and just barely sees, one of the shadows moving around the deck, and he's pretty freaked out about it. 
Captain Thompson explains that this has only happened once before, and when it did, he lost half of his sailors. So now he thinks it might be best to just go home and scrap the ship. And then he says, I guess we're in for it. This is a great ominous line. I guess we're in for it. It's the late hours of the night now, and Carnaghi is hanging out on deck, and he keeps seeing this vagueness that he saw before, but he's never able to fully apprehend it. He really kind of only sees it out of his periphery. And then there's a second one, and this one is even a little different. It has a, a constant, oily-seeming whirling from the center outwards. This is a real weird thing that is happening here. And as he watches it, the thing changes shape and changes color first growing large and black, and then dissipating. A week passes in exactly this same fashion. Calm seas by day, this weird wind, and then the shadows. Each evening, Karnacki experiments with his repellent vibrations, but nothing happens. There's, there's nothing really to show for these experiments. And we get some really great passages here about the sea, just some beautiful writing. Hodgson writes that it looked like a plane of glass, which is an image I really, really love. He also writes, And the sea appeared to have become an emblem of desolation and freeness, so that it seemed to me, at last, that there was no more any known world, but just one great ocean going on forever into the far distance in every direction. What a sense of isolation and helplessness in that phrase. One of the wonderful tropes of nautical writing is the sense of being becalmed on the ocean. And Hodgson does such a great job to evoke the dread and the waiting and the fear of not knowing when the wind will come to take you away or if you're rowing against current of when you can get to the next port of call when you're just stuck out in the ocean and that's literally all there is it's like floating in space it's absolutely wonderful writing and it really does evoke a sense of beautiful dread this is up there with some of the best weird fiction writing I think I've I've read so far for the podcast. And we don't do a whole lot of biographical information on this show because we're switching authors every week, and that's not really what our project is to, to really delve into who these people are. But Hodgson worked as a sailor for a long time. Hodgson also, we should say, uh, died in combat in the First World War. And he wrote about his experiences in the war, writing letters home, some of which was published. So we might take a look at some of those works at some point in sort of our, our annual look at speculative fiction writers who had military experience. Well, as the days pass, Karnacki becomes convinced that his work is in fact producing results. It's just that the results are the opposite of what he actually wants, which is to say that he thinks that his machine might actually be attracting the clouds and the wind instead of repelling them. He talks it over with the captain, and they decide to run the machine on full power all night and to take careful observations to see if anything can be learned. Karnacki calls this a bold plan, and I have to say that I agree, but only if we are using the word bold as a euphemism for super foolish. He just told us how alone they are out in the middle of the ocean. This is not a safe thing to, to do, and uh, it's not going to turn out well. No, it certainly won't. And one thing that jumps out at me at this section, is, as I kind of brought up earlier in the uh, recap, is that I, I'm, I'm surprised by Karnacki's gladness or relief to have extra men on deck during this final experiment where he's trying to repel these dark spirits or super attract them or whatever the case may be. And I can't help feeling that if I were 
if I were Karnacki's friend and I was just being invited over to his house, like whenever he decided to hear about these stories and adventures he goes on, that, that I might want to go along. And like, I'd be a little wounded that he's like, I won't take you guys because I don't want to risk anybody's life. But these guys are bold and brave and they make the own, their own choice to risk their lives. And I was glad to have them on deck. And you're just there sitting in a comfortable chair, smoking a cigar, feeling maybe like, uh, like a second class type of friend or something. It's really funny to me. But whatever the case, it's clear that Karnacki wants companionship during these trying moments, and he just doesn't want his friends along with him. So, you know, I I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I'm just taking this story a little too personally, but I'd probably be a little sore about that at the at the end of the day. Well, you know, I think you point to something that I I didn't notice about this, but there might be some class humor that Hodgson is employing here about what it means to be a, a, a gentleman of means at this time versus someone who does stuff and what courage is really like and that sort of thing that's kind of lost on on us now a century later. Yeah, I definitely read some of the mode that he's telling the story in as these like little jabs and in jokes at his friends i think it's the only way that it can be read he's definitely organizing the narrative for a very specific audience so it's just kind of fun to read and think about those sorts of things well part of the the crazy plan that karnaki comes up with here involves locking up the sailors in the forecastle and karnaki is so serious about this right? he does not want these sailors getting out and like ruining his experiment so he's so serious about this that he doesn't trust the padlocks they use and he uses some magic here he makes the first and the eighth signs of the Sama ritual around the door. And we get an interesting comment here when Karnacki actually addresses one of his friends who's here listening to the story. This is a guy named Arkwright, whom he says has studied the science of magic more than he has. And I have to say that this really piqued my interest. And I hope we'll get more about Arkwright in some of these other Karnacki stories. Maybe he's not actually just a kind of uh, not really courageous, do nothing here. He might actually be having his own occult detective or urban fantasy adventures. So the sailors are all locked up, except, as you, as you, you hinted at, Brandon, for the captain and also the three mates who Karnacki actually wants to lock up, but they insist that they aren't going to let the captain face this alone. So Karnacki sets up his gear and then he makes everyone stand close together while he chalks a pentacle around them. But this pentacle is actually just a temporary expedient to buy some time while he sets up an electric pentacle with some tubes that he uses especially for this. And I I love the sort of techno maginess of this. It's very, very cool. Well, now they wait. Eventually, out in the distance, there is a strange, vague darkening of the surface of the sea, which I thought was another great line. This darkening is a mist, and as it closes in, there's a a strange, silent lightning, and the whole thing seems hardly real to Karnacki, as if it's maybe, I think, probably the thing would approximate is like being on a green screen or something where we, we know it doesn't seem quite real, but yet there it is in front of us nonetheless. Right. The odd phrase he uses here is that it wasn't lightning, but represented lightning in some way. And this notion of a thing that's not a thing that's representing something else is really fascinating. And I don't know if it's worth digging into because uh, Karnacki himself says, no, I know how I'm using the term and I know it's not right, but this is the best way I can describe it. Um, So it's all in good fun here. But yeah, you're right. It's this weird, unreal effect. It's uncanny. And like I said, in this story, Hodgson is exceptionally good at describing the uncanny, which is something we've seen other weird fiction writers really struggle with. 
Well, as unreal and as uncanny as this seems to him, it does have an actual physical effect. The ship begins to shake almost as if an invisible hand is picking it up and and playing with it. And this happens a few times, but it always stops with no real harm done to the, the ship or anyone in it. A while later, as the mist continues to close in on the ship, it becomes hard to breathe. They're like asphyxiating in this. And now there are gray clouds all around the ship. And as they begin to oscillate, the ship does too. It starts to spin around. And just as soon as this stops, everything goes black. The lightning stops and they are just in pure darkness. Gradually, they become aware that the ship is tilting downwards, right? The ship is beginning to sink. And now the captain is actually worried and he tells Karnacki to turn off his machine or the ship will be gone in a matter of moments. Karnacki turns it off and instantly the ship rights itself and everything seems fine, but it isn't. Karnacki realizes that something is wrong really immediately here. There's a huge flash of lightning and then the crash of thunder and the the wind screams. And then there is a shrill howling that comes at them out of the dark. And there's another great description here. Hudson writes, It was as if all the night on that side were a vast cliff, sending down high and monstrous echoes upon us, as if one had come suddenly upon the steeps of some monstrous lost world. Again, just chilling descriptions here, uh, but it's all too much for the Jarvi. The wind rolls her over, and even when the storm disappears, she is in danger because she's leaking. And for two days, they continue to sail, but eventually they have to get in the lifeboats and they have to abandon the Jarvi, which is now safely at the bottom of the Atlantic. And fortunately, the whole crew was picked up that night by some other vessel. And that brings Karnacki's story to a close and is going to return us to the, the frame narrative. And as soon as the frame narrative does pick up again here, our narrator, Dodson, asks the big question. He says, yeah, so what was actually going on? What caused this to happen? And Karnacki doesn't have a definitive answer. He believes that the Jarvi was a focus for any nearby psychic waves, but how that came to be, he can only speculate. And, and he does do that, does speculate about it. He, he explains that, you know, this is something that can happen simply because of the combination of building materials or the manner in which the workers use their hammers, just in the same way that a series of bizarre circumstances can create an electrical current where we wouldn't expect one. So, too, they can create a current for these attractive vibrations. And Carnegie finishes his explanation here just by saying that since we still can't really explain what electricity is, we shouldn't worry about the other things we can't really explain. But he is hopeful that the steady march of knowledge and the steady march of science will eventually come up with answers to Dodgson's questions. And that's the end of the story. Yeah, what an end it is. I love this connection between, you know, the things that up to this point we've learned about electricity with like currents and waves and oscillations and magnetism, you know, the, the attraction and repellent and you know, all this other stuff that's going on here that stands in for if this unseen force works this way, other unseen forces might too. And there's a lot of science stuff we can figure out to figure out why that works. And we see this all over urban fantasy sort of storytelling today with, you know, people reading electromagnets to find ghost frequencies. I don't know, all that kind of fun stuff. To me, it's absolutely insane that the ship sinks at the end of this story. I mean, yeah. this is the reason why the story exists. 
what has been saved here? What has really happened? For someone who is so scientific in, in a sense, as Karnacki is, in the way that they go about conducting their business, knowing the right spells to do, setting up the right apparatus, and being able to problem solve all of these things in a, in a rational mode, Karnacki leaves no evidence behind to determine what causes the odd occurrence. And yeah, as you said, Glenn, he is able to speculate, but it's just crazy that here he has an opportunity to determine maybe under what conditions the ship was built what was were the astrological signs in the in the sky what was happening around that time in what manner did people bang their hammers to create these types of vibrations that attract spirits so this is where i really want to start with the discussion with the sinking of the jarvi and its explanation that somehow the mystical astrological and spiritual forces all align somewhat coincidentally, to basically turn the ship into a cursed object, into a magnet for dark spiritual forces. And I want to think of this in terms of contrast of the typical ghost story that we get up to this point, which might involve a a cry out for justice or an, an unwell spirit or a mystery that needs to be uncovered. And I just want to know how this works for you, Glenn, how this subversion of expectation works for the story. And is the sinking of the Jarvie satisfying to you in the mode that this story is written and in terms of the tropes that it is pulling on in order to create and subvert reader expectations well this is a this is a massive question you've just posed to me here bandit so i'm gonna try to break it down into some distinct components so one of the first things that strikes me about you know expectations that i have for a story and whether or not this ending is satisfying is what's the point of the protagonist is the protagonist a hero in this story is the protagonist a force for good And in detective stories, any type of detective fiction, whether it's occult detective fiction or hard-boiled detective fiction or even uh, just a nice cozy mystery, the detective is a hero. The detective is supposed to be a force for good. This is the descendant of the chivalric romance of the Middle Ages. One of the things that really subverts my expectations for that mold of a story here is that I'm not sure Karnacki did anything good in this story. By his own admission, his machine was making this worse, and then he doubles down on that when he realizes it, and it's clear that the physical forces that doom the Jarvi here at the end are in response to his machine, to his plan to keep it on full power the whole night through. So he's the one who's destroyed the ship by calling these forces, calling these spirits. If he hadn't been on the ship, if he hadn't done that, the Jarvi might have actually had a fairly successful voyage of some sort. So he's actually maybe kind of something of a meddler, something of a a trickster, a force for not good here in this story. And that really broke my expectations for the story. I'm not sure that I found that dissatisfying. I like when stories break my expectations, but that was the real big one that jumped out to me. One thing about his explanation that strikes me is that he seems to indicate or insinuate, might be a better word, that he has done something good because this ship is doomed in some way. And so this was the best outcome. To magnify the spiritual forces to the point of the ship's destruction is the best outcome for the ship. Because at the end of the day, what was lost was an object and not people. But this isn't really drawn out for me. And there's not really a mystery that's being solved. So there is a kind of weird problem with the protagonist of this story in the tradition of weird fiction or detective fiction. What is he actually uncovering 
that we need to know about the world. Right. And in in this story, the captain really had the better plan, which was, let's just turn around, let's go back to England, and uh, and we can scrap the ship there, rather than break her apart in the middle of the ocean and hope that the lifeboats survive, and also that we'll get picked up by somebody else. And this dovetails into sort of one of the other ways that this subverted my expectations, that the ending of the story maybe was less than satisfying to me. And that I think this story actually would have worked better for me, probably not for the audience that Hodgson wrote this for, the contemporary audience, but I think it would have worked better for me if there had been no attempt at all to explain what was happening, and maybe if he himself hadn't even realized that he was attracting the forces. Maybe uh, Gene Wolfe style, Hodgson could have peppered in some some hints to the reader that that's what's going on, but leave it for Karnacki to not determine that, or at least determine that until it's too late. And so he seems like a victim of this along with everybody else. And and then leaving it a mystery, I think, would make this feel more terrifying to me. I don't know why this happened. I don't even have any rational categories to put this in or, or something something like that, I think, would have worked better for me. It certainly would have fit more of the mold of what becomes weird fiction of the unknown remaining unknown. I'm not really sure what to make of the analog between electricity and practices of being a spiritual medium, of attractive forces to spirits and the vibrations of the body or of objects that naturally attract these forces. I can only think that Hodgson is looking at a new technology as an analog in order to have some explanatory power about what is really a big cultural fad at this moment in history and write a story that people will enjoy. The thing that's missing for me in this story, the sole thing, is the mystery. This story lacks an actual mystery that the protagonist has to go in and solve using his own knowledge. That's the, you know, the ghost story is kind of a cousin to the mystery story and we need to know why there's a ghost. And for this story, the reason why there are ghosts is because of the way the hammers were hit on a certain day under a certain star that made this ship a cursed object. And yet it doesn't read like a cursed object story. So do you think that is a fault of Hodgson trying to combine these different tropes and genres in order to create a new type of story, which he does successfully? I mean, the the, the impact of this type of story is big, which we're going to talk about next. Or is it a failure on our part being far removed from the fads that this story is detailing and talking about? Oh, I think the failure is 100% on our part. I think this story probably worked very well in its own day. These Karnacki stories were a huge hit. And, you know, if we were to set this story next to a, a companion contemporary piece, I think we would find that this is doing a lot more maybe than we noticed that it's doing with these expectations and these tropes. And when we did note how he was breaking a lot of the tropes of a mystery story or and also a ghost story, but this is also really an early science fiction story in some sense. I mean, this is contemporary to H.G. Wells writing stories about scientists who are doing scientism in the world, who are dispelling belief in magic and superstition. And that is what Karnacki is all about as well. 
And so Hodgson, I think here, one of the things he's doing with the tropes and the expectations of early science fiction is actually kind of turning that on its head again and saying that, sure, there might be physical mechanisms that are doing these things, but we still don't know what they are. So the effect that they have on us and our ability to do anything about them makes them still maybe not scientific. And so he's being able here to tell a scary story that is also a story for the new rational citizen, you know, of the the upper crust anglophone world where everyone can feel good about how rational and knowledgeable we are and the sort of onward march of scientific progress that the story ends with, but still tell a good ghost story that would have been fashionable for his grandfather. Well, we've talked about scientism a few times and I and I do want to take a moment to address what that means, uh, as opposed to doing science. Scientism is the belief in a sense, and it is a belief, it's almost a faith system in in some sense, that everything can be reduced to the scientific method and rational processes. And this idea brought into the world of ghosts and spirits and mediums is hugely influential on what we call today, urban fantasy, which is we don't always know the outcome of what we're doing or saying. But if you read this text this way, the outcome will be consistent over here. So you read the exorcism text, and then the demon is exercised. It's all logic. It's conditional. It's rational. And it's based in the scientific method of observation. And though we may not have the explanatory power to detail all the mechanisms of the non-material world, we have the scientific or scientistic power to explain cause and effect on that world. So I think in that way, then, this story really precedes the genre of urban fantasy almost more than it's a part of the weird fiction canon. In urban fantasy, we also see characters that have a special skill or knowledge or ability that's innate in them to encounter and counter these sorts of dark forces. And, you know, this is by, as I said, the series of arcane strategies and spells that entrap the forces of darkness in their own game. And it's really about bringing the spiritual world back into a rational order. You're not writing about Poseidon's power in the sea, which just represents chaos, and you're just thrown into this chaos, and you're powerless against it. If you have the right prayers or the right chants, you can defeat these gods. In in a sense, the gods are subordinate to the processes of magic and logic and the rational systems we can build, rather than being capricious and all powerful, as we see in you know ancient literature. So, I'd like to get your sense here, Glenn of whether or not you think my claim is a fair one about this story being a a predecessor or preceding urban fantasy, and your thoughts on how urban fantasy works for you, where urban fantasy stories work for you, and where they really fall apart. I can just start by saying, for me, urban fantasy falls apart when it becomes about the forces of the non-material world being subordinate to rational cause and effect systems where everything is basically powerless against the right type of spell and the job of the detective is to uncover the right rational process to defeat the being. That's my 
sense of where these stories don't work, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and whether or not, again, you think this story is really a predecessor to urban fantasy. There's a kind of embedded question inside the one that you've actually posed, which is asking us to really meditate here about the origins of urban fantasy or the evolution of urban fantasy. How does it come to exist? The name itself, which is, you know, really it's a publishing category, urban fantasy, suggests that it's a fantasy story, but it's not, you know, some sort of speculative version of the Middle Ages with elves and dwarves. It's fantasy in our own world, but fantasy in the sense of there's going to be magic and stuff, right? Maybe there will be elves, but they're going to be running around the the streets of Philadelphia, not the forests of Middle Earth. That's what the the name suggests. But I think in its real roots, that's not really where urban fantasy comes from. I don't really think that that grows out of people reading Tolkien or, or, or sword and sorcery stories by Robert E. Howard, for example, and decide they want to put those stories in our own world. I think they grow out of the stories like Karnacki, the, the ghost finder, and other types of occult detective stories. And so really, I think, to me, urban fantasy actually is more of a subset of weird fiction than it is a subset or subgenre of fantasy. None of that really matters. They're just publishing categories. You should love what you love and read what you want to read and watch what you want to watch, regardless of what labels are put on it. But it is interesting as a sort of intellectual history exercise to sort of trace where writers are coming up with these ideas, how of saying, oh, I want to tell a story like that, but different and what the intellectual or the creative move is. And I think that we can see here, seen thinking about this, as you suggest, as a sort of early or proto-urban fantasy story, what we can see here is that the move is really not about taking elves and bringing them to London, or even taking magic and bringing it to London, that it's, it's about taking science and applying it to magic. It's about saying, ah, we have stories about magic in our own past, say, you know, the 16th century, for example, John Dee and his cronies. What if there really was a thing they were doing? We've simply forgotten how to do it because we have lost the science of magic, which is a phrase that Carnacki actually uses here when he's talking about Arkwright. And I think that that's really the, the intellectual or the creative move that happens here in this story is to, to science up magic rather than to just move magic wholesale to a, a different setting. Right, exactly. It's answering the question of what if industrialization happens? What if we can't deny the power of scientific explanation in our world? Yet, these things, these folk stories, these realities that our ancestors, our past generations have lived with and written about for hundreds, if not thousands of years, are true along with our ability to rationally process, explain, and understand post-enlightenment scientism, cause and effect, conditional statements. Um, What if everything is subordinate to rationalism rather than irrationalism is one way to put it. And I think that's that's a really wonderful answer. And I think we see the early stages of that here in this Hodgson story. And there's a myriad examples we've brought up in this episode of this at play in our pop culture today. There's Jim Butcher series, The Dresden Files. There is a new series coming out, you know, based on uh, Deborah Harkness's books, uh, Discovery of Witches, which is witches and vampires in Oxford and finding mysterious texts in the Bodleian and all these other types (laughs) of things going on. Uh, You know, there's Supernatural, which is one of the longest running series of our current 
generation. I mean, it's almost two generations old at this point. Of course, you and I both cut our teeth on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel, where those stories work because they're about the relationships between people and not the ability to cast the right spell uh, of the consistency of cause and effect. So these sorts of things are absolutely everywhere. And I just couldn't help in reading this story, recognizing the origins of the non-material world uh, being first materializable, being able to be made into matter that you can control, but also being subordinate to the scientific process. And and, and that, that really blew me away. And it's a reason why I really enjoyed this story. Yeah, I really love this story too. I've read some Hodgson before. I've read his novel, The Nightlands, which is actually something I got to via Jack Vance, which I got to via Gene Wolfe. So came at the work of William Hope Hodgson from a totally different place than one might encounter these Karnacki stories uh, on their own. So this was my first Karnacki the Ghostfinder story, though. The legend of Karnacki the Ghostfinder has loomed large in my understanding of the evolution of the occult detective. So I was really delighted here for the opportunity given to us by one of of our listeners to get into these. We'll be back. We'll be covering more of these stories in the future. Yeah, and I can't wait to do so. I can't wait to look at these and see what other types of genres they influence or how strong of a hold they actually have on what we call the urban fantasy genre today. But for now, that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of the Haunted Jar V. I would personally love to hear from our, our listeners who are more mechanically or electrically engineered minded to point out the real importance of the imagery of electricity in this story, which I think we only barely touched on. But as, as we continue to cover it, I realized this is a massive part of what is going on in this story. So I'd love to hear from our listeners more about that or any other thoughts you might have about our coverage of this story. And we'd love for you to let us know if you'd like to commission us to cover one of your favorite stories or episodes of TV. It's something we really love to do. Well, next time we will be back with our regularly scheduled Elder Sign content. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>